Good morning. We can do better than that, I'm sure. Good morning. So now you can hear it also when you're sitting, wherever you're sitting. I know several of our our faithful, good people are traveling also this morning. And, and if you are uh, watching for where you are, you can hear too. Good morning to everyone here. Uh, we sense that we are together for a very special uh, gathering as it is every Sunday because we gather not for our own sake only, but for the meeting of the living Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so may it be that we see his hand, not just know that he's here intellectually, but that we sense he's here, walking up and down these aisles, touching every heart that is here. You know that that last uh, Sunday, uh, it was called Grit. And we, we went to Philippians chapter two to, to recognize that it is God that, that gives us both to will and to work. And so today I thought maybe we'll stay a little bit in, in that theme and just recognize how God works through people. And I'm going to speak today from Colossians chapter four. So you can begin as I'm giving these opening remarks just to find that or follow on the screen when that comes uh, in just a little bit. To be a Christian, of course, means that you are a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. And to be a disciple is to be someone who recognizes my life is about change. My life is about transformation. I need to learn to think in new ways. Paul puts it about as clearly as he can that when he says that, that you need to be in the process of the renewing of your mind, right? To think differently so that you may know the will of God. It, it is pretty clear. And, and if you don't have that verse written down and underlined and, and highlighted in your scripture, write down, I need to memorize Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and just to see how that goes. Don't be conformed with that world. That is, don't be thinking like you always did. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may be able to discern what is the will of God. And that's kind of where we begin in so many ways here that <clears throat> discipleship, in other words, is about theology. It is about knowing God. And those who are involved with that, and we're going to look at some of them today, they are about helping people recognize who God is and the difference that He makes, therefore. Not only in a few things that they may alter because they follow him, but in the very structure of their minds. And so um, we're going to look at this and just recognize here when we start, friends, just to slow up and think for a moment. Here's Paul writing. Busy as all could be. Worldwide travel, international travel. Full of persecution, busy writing letters, busy with travel schedule, starting new churches here and there. It's all about all these many things and, and great progress and great growth. And, and they, even when he stops someplace like in Thessalonica for just maybe max three weeks, he leaves the church. It's always that. And then in the midst of that, he will never forget 
that is always about people. It's about individuals. It's about people who recognize that they have met the living Lord Jesus Christ. And that has to change everything. People who are very clear about their calling and the purpose that God has put on their lives. So I'd like to talk to you this morning about co-workers or mission workers in the kingdom of God. And Paul talks about three kinds here. If you have found chapter 4 of the letter to the Colossians, we'll begin to read in verse 10. Four kinds, those who stay focused, those who bow their knees, and those who just bow out. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner sends you greetings as does Mark, Barnabas's cousin, concerning whom uh, you have received instructions that if he comes to you, welcome him. And so does Jesus, who is called Justice. These alone, uh, these alone of the circumcised uh, are my co-workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been co- uh, comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Jesus Christ, sends you greetings. He's always wrestling for you in his prayers so that you can stand mature, fully assured in everything God wills. For I testify about him that he works hard for you. For those in Laodicea and for all those in Hierapolis. Luke, the dearly beloved physician and Demas send your greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her home. After his letters have been read, uh, after this letter has been read at your gathering, have it read also in the church of Laodiceans and see to it that you also uh, read the letter from the Laodiceans and tell Archippus, pay attention to the ministry you have received in the Lord so that you may accomplish it. I, Paul, am writing this greeting with my own hand. Remember my, my chains. Grace be with you. Those who stay focused. And he begins with someone we all should know, that, but someone we probably do not. Aristarchus. And he gives him this tremendous title that, that kind of highlights who he is already, my fellow prisoner. And it becomes like an encouragement. We see him again also in, in Philippians and, and several other places. And, and he is an encouragement. He comes originally from, from Thessalonica where Paul started that church. And there's a good chance uh, because of what we know from other places that he might be actually a son of the governor of, of that area or of that city. But anyway, uh, what we see here is that he is one of the greatest helpers of Paul. Paul's right hand, uh, in so many ways that he was there when, when things were hard. He traveled with Paul, uh, 
to Rome, and, and we see he was part of the riots that happened in, in, in Ephesus. Some of you have, have not read about that and may not know it. That's fair enough. But if you go to the book of Acts later on, not right now, yes, later on, uh, in chapter 20, you'll see some of that. Paul comes to Ephesus, and Aristarchus is with him, and he talks to a silversmith who's making quite a lot of money by, by doing little silver kind of statuettes of the, the uh, pagan temple there. And Paul speaks the gospel, and people follow what he says and leaves the pagan temple behind, for which uh, Demetrius, the, the silversmith, uh, gets really upset, get a whole city in uproar, and it's a riot, and, and they have to flee for their lives Aristarchus is one of those. So he is part of what Paul is all about. He was there also on, on the boat when they sailed to Rome later on and they were shipwrecked and Aristarchus is right there. And he's, of course, with him here as he pens uh, these words from prison to the church in Colossae. They're, they're so must to be said and I, I want to see how that fits even even with us as we think about here's someone who stays focused when life is very very hard it, it was not someone who just said how can I kind of claim that I'm a Christian and then then still get out of it in in the slightest way I, I kind of grew up nice with with as a governor's son and all that kind of stuff no he is right there as a mission worker and as a co-worker when it's the hardest. In church history later on, having been listed among some of the early martyrs, uh, that he's there not bowing out, but staying firm. And maybe one of the strongest things to be said about him is that if you turn to, to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it has a phrase here, we don't know that it refers to him but it could. And Paul says he's doing the collection to help the church in Jerusalem and he's visiting with the churches around. And he says, We have sent with him the brother who is praised among all the churches for his gospel ministry. So as they bring this church, this, this gift to the church, they bring this person, they don't have to mention his name. They don't have to tell he's the one who started this church. So he's the one who is known because he did these great things. He's not known for having been the church planter here, there, or doing all these kinds of things. It suffices to say he's the one who is treasured in all the churches for his gospel ministry. Could that speak to us? Could that speak to you in all honesty, friends? As we... Look at where we are placed in a society there that everybody needs to rethink what it means if they become Christians. So many things need to be done away with. So many other things need to be rethought in light of who Jesus is. Here's one. I, I'm, I read this, friends, and it may just be me, I don't know, but I'm thinking if my life was to be summarized, that's how I would like for it to be summarized. The one who is loved by the churches for his ministry to the gospel. Yes? That kind of commitment is what we see when we talk about gospel workers and, and ministry co-workers. Just, just look at 
what it is when we see these things. The next one he mentions is Mark. And we had uh, some, some weeks back, a little while back now, I spent a whole sermon just talking about Mark and, and, and who he was and, and how the gospel came through him as a regular kind of uh, a person who gave his life to Christ and who saw how everything changed. He speaks to us with a different flavor. And I wonder if Paul had some of that in mind. He might not, but it certainly speaks to us with this. When he mentions Mark, John Mark, who was, who was, uh, who came to faith through Peter. In fact, Peter calls him his son. He's best known for his gospel. The Gospel of Mark, which is a collection of, 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 of Mark taking notes from Peter's sermons and then kind of putting them in that form of the gospel. And so we, we see this. Here's where he speaks to us. Maybe to some of you actually who are watching. Listen to this. Listen to this. He went with Peter. And he listened and found the Lord. He's a cousin of Barnabas. So he went with Barnabas and Paul on the first missionary journey. And something happened there. We're not sure what. But he left to go back. We don't know why. The Bible does not say why. It could be all kinds of things. He grew up pretty cushy, actually. His mother was Mary, and the church gathered in her church, uh, in her home in Jerusalem. So that means that she had, uh, you know, was pretty well to do to have a home uh, like that. It could be that, that it was just too hard. It could be that he disagreed with Paul and, and couldn't see his way clear to think that God would include all the Gentiles the same way he included the Jews. There could be all kinds of things, but the rift was so deep, so deep that it even split Paul and Barnabas later on. And then, then now, what do we see here? We see him back. And not only is he back, he's one of the fellow prisoners here. Notice, notice what's going on. Who knows the kind of rumors that have gone on around the churches about him since he left Paul, right? So Paul had preceded this letter with an earlier note saying, if Mark comes your way, make sure that you welcome him. Make sure you don't have whatever kind of hang-ups you may have had, whatever you may have heard, forget it. This is about this person's commitment to Christ, and you need to encourage him. There might be some of you sitting at home that I used to be very active here in this fellowship at First Baptist Church in Louisville. Uh, this is my church. I still kind of think of it that way. Uh, I have not left the Lord, and neither had Mark. There's nothing that indicates that he had left the Lord. Right? So, so he just... Had fallen away for a bit. He was outside for a bit. But the Lord worked on him. And he came back. And became one of the treasured co-workers and mission workers. If that's you, you're sitting at home. You're thinking, it burns in my heart. I need to be back with my people. And let me say this to you then. If that's the case, we have sent a letter out to all this church. Welcome anyone who comes in and wants to serve. Yes? 
We can do better than that, yes? yes? That's exactly what Paul is doing right here. Concerning him, you have received instruction that if he comes to you, welcome him. I, I need to not be laboring that too much more. But how does that not speak to us sometimes when we, we struggle, we go through times, and it's difficult for a moment, and, and, and it's just like, and then we come back. We come back. Mark is that example of this, a transformation that runs so deep that even though there might be ripples on the surface sometimes, it does not change his desire to be back. And then the next one, Jesus called justice. And you wonder, we don't know really anything about him. And, and he, all we know is that that, that phrase, that, that his, the Jewish name will be Joshua, and then his Greek name or his Roman name would be Justice. And so you may know him better by his Roman name than you know him by his Hebrew name, and which could indicate for us that he was one who may have been pretty well known in, in the society around him. You know, Joshua, he's a Jewish man, one of the circumcised, but he's done so well in his business or whatever made him known that you know him better by his Roman name, the name used in kind of regular, linger, uh, regular language around town. But is there someone who can speak to those of us about whom nothing is said? All we know, he's here. We don't see him in any other place. Nothing is described about him. He's just Joshua or Jesus, the one who is also called Justice. He's here. Some of you are like that. I'd rather be unknown. I'm glad people know my name. I'm glad that, but I'm not known for anything in particular. I'm there, and I'm carrying. I'm a gospel and a mission worker and co-worker. So much can be said about the encouragement that that should bring to us, friends. As you think through, why is God in my life? What? difference does it make? Why am I here in this church? Why have God called me to be a co-worker in his kingdom that is in a specific local fellowship and expression of the same? Those who stay focused. What a challenge. The last one he mentioned of those comes down in, in verse 14 and, and is Luke. And, and he's described as a well-known. Actually, his name is not mentioned that much in Scripture. But we know him uh, here. He's not one of the Jews. He's a beloved physician, a very special relationship between Paul and Luke. He was there all the time. In fact, to the last letter he writes in Second Timothy. Just these words that are penned probably a couple of weeks before he was decapitated. I think that Luke probably penned them while Paul was dictating. Look, we got to write Timothy about these things. we got to tell them and have him share that word. Luke was penning down and Paul was, was dictating. I have no one here, Paul says in, in that letter, but my... Beloved 
physician. Now, what could we say about him? Well, he was a Gentile. In fact, he is the only Gentile who writes in all of Scripture. There's no one else who's a Gentile who writes anything in Scripture. And in the New Testament, he has more than anyone else. More than 25% of the New Testament is written by Luke, the beloved physician. That's more than all 13 letters of Paul put together in terms of the amount of texts that are there. Very special. He was a researcher, an intellectual. He starts his gospel by saying, I have decided, dear Theophilus, a Roman official, to research this, to write it down in order so that I can present to you the story of Jesus Christ. He's a healer. And although Paul had the gift of healing, we see that many times he traveled with Luke all the time. Just read through uh, the gospel. I mean, the yeah, the Gospel of Luke and, and the book of Acts, you'll see how close they are. Those who stay focused on what their calling is. And then, of course, we go on and we see those who bow their knees. There's a very special word right here about Epaphras in verse 12. If you're following uh, like that, you will see Epaphras. Not one that, that people quote most of the time, right? But, but he's the one who started this church in Colossae that Paul is writing right here. And he's a special kind of man of prayer. And I want to see how Paul, with just in few words, says so much about the character and heart of this person called Epaphras. First, it says in verse 12 that, that he prays always. That is constantly. That is not just when, when he thinks of it. Then he's, oh, I need to pray for Paul. Or he comes to mind. Or well, let's call a prayer meeting. We'll pray. Or, or something. Not just that. It was the very way his spirit was turned. That his life was bathed in prayer. That's how he was recognized. He prays all the time. Not just, would you please pray? No, I have already done so. That's the heartbeat of my spirit. And look here, just with little words, he puts that in right here. Paul says that he strives for, he wrestles for them always. And, and that's, a, again, a strong word. It's an intensive type word. It's the exact same word that is used when Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. Exact same word right before his crucifixion. And it says that Jesus was struggling or wrestling in prayer. That very word. Engaging everything that was in him for the situation that he is praying for. Same word also that is used uh, for, for sports people as, as they are in training and they, they put everything else aside for that one purpose to train for that game that they want to be first in. Same word. And I need to say to those of you who have that calling and those of you who are, for whom this is the most important thing, that that's not an add-on. Those of you who are prayer warriors like that, you are co-workers, mission workers. Nothing can be done in any church without 
this. Are we hearing this? It's also not an add-on for those of us that, that that's not our primary calling. But it is always a part of our calling. He was still a church planner. He was still a pastor. He was still doing all these other things. And then notice one thing more. That he is praying personally. Just this little phrase. The one who is always wrestling what? For you. Not just broad prayers. Not God bless your kingdom. Let people feel that you're there. Let, let us know that you live. Let, you know, be, be good to these people. They're going through a hard time. Please be with them. You know, broadly speaking without. No, he's praying for them. Specifically for you, Paul is saying. And not just, you know, vapidly in, in this kind of a broad, kind of generic sense that, you know, Lord, be with this church that I can't be with them right now. But very specifically, look what it says right here. That he's praying for them. So that what? They can be fully assured. That they can stand mature. This is a discipleship thing, friends. Don't miss this. People came to Christ from different cultures. They had grown up with this is how we understand life. This is how the narrative that I have followed, that I've always been thinking, this is how I put things together from this story. And now I'm suddenly going to change the story I live by and live from. The story that is God's story. Beginning in Genesis, ends in Revelation, right? And it comes to its climax in Jesus Christ. It's not just, yeah, I believe I'll go to heaven when I die because Jesus died for my sins. It is a whole change of the way you look at life. That was true then. But friend, that is exactly also true now. I hope we're getting this, friends. That, that is... I. Pray for you. Or he does here wrestling for you all the time. Why? So that you can be mature. Very specific. That people may know God's will. Follow God's will. In everything. Just look at it. Focus prayer. Concern. That they will become real disciples. Is that how we pray for one another? It's a real question, friends. It's not rhetorical. You don't have to speak out loud, but you have to speak in your own heart. It's not difficult to play church. It's not difficult to claim the Christian title like it was a noun or something. But it is a verb. Discipleship. Something you live out. So you have those that, that stay focused. You have those that, that bow their knees. And then you have those that bow out. So he mentions Demas, who is still with him at this time. The first time we hear about him is in this very brief letter. He also writes from this same prison cell right there in Rome. And when he writes to, to Philemon, another person he led to Christ. 
And so he mentions Demas there that he's with him also. And, and, and so he's a co-worker, as, as he says there. And here there's nothing said about him other than he sends his greeting. And then the third time we hear about him is in Second, uh, in Second Timothy, that last letter again. And he says, you can almost hear the vibration of pain in his voice. He said, Demas left me. For the love of this world. What happened? What began to slide for Demas? Did, did he think he could serve two masters? You know, I'd, I'd given too much. I got to pull back so I could also, you know, enjoy the world more. What, 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 is, what is going on here? He didn't say that he lost his faith. Paul did not say that he stopped believing in Jesus Christ. What he says is that he left his active witness as a disciple of Jesus Christ. He's not saying, well, he left me to go serve with Barnabas. Or he left me to go serve with Peter. Or he, left me, he left me for the love of this world. His Christian witness was drowned out by other priorities. No doubt it hurt when Paul wrote those words. But what a call to us even today, friends. What a call to us. When other narratives and other priorities and other ways of thinking about success and what is important in the world presses in. What a challenge it is to hear about someone. That Paul mentions like that. This church, friends, is, is in this interim position, right? We're, we're, we're waiting for a new pastor. We're waiting for God, what God would do through a new a spiritual leader, one who can guide in the things that we just talked here, train people in theological thinking that changes the way we work and the way we think. And the way he put life together. But God continues to call mission workers and co-workers in the kingdom. There's no pause to that. There's no, oh, we can wait and not do anything until something else begins. Life is not a series of things we can continue to wait for. I speak to students about that, friends. There's some that say, well, you know, when I get through my undergrad, then really I'll begin to truly serve Jesus. Well, then, you know, you say, well, when I get married, then our home will do that. Well, then you start a master. So, well, when I'm done with my masters, that's when we really can do it. And then, well, when I get a new job that would provide better, then you keep having moments pushing it out. Yes, life is not like that. Life is one life. Yes. Where God gives us different opportunities at different times to do different things, but always be co-workers and mission workers. So could it be, I don't know if I should say this, but I'm still going to. How's that? People who study organizations and people who study church also. Say so there are four stages in the life of a church. First, it's about the man. 
or the people. Everything is focused on the people. And then it moves to become about the movement. You're not looking at the individual so much. You're looking at this whole movement. And then after a while, it becomes about the machine. And and you're thinking about how do we keep up what we have started and what we have built. And then finally, it becomes about the monument. Do you remember back when? Now, that was great. And Paul is reminding us here that this is always about the people. Right? Think of that. The man, the movement, the machine, the monument. Paul says it's always about the people. Let it be that anyone who ever enters our halls, whoever meets any of us, wherever we are, that there could be no doubt that we serve a living God. That coming in here is, is a kind of connection to the one who is alive, whose heart will overflow with love to all of us. Not a monument with a smile on it, but a living, heartwarming, breathing place where clearly God's Spirit works. We're going to meet around the Lord's Supper table. I'm going to ask Troy to come to the piano for a moment. I'm going to ask the deacons to go to the different stations. You'll see those stations about six, seven, eight places up here on the balcony as well, so that none of you will have to travel far to walk far to get to it. It's always an issue, is it not? When God calls us around his table. Think of this way. Do this, Jesus says, in remembrance of me. We have warped the whole sense of what memory is so often. We're thinking it's just about me remembering something that happened. That's not what memory is about. Memory is about identity, who we are, friends. Can I say that? You know, in the ancient world, if you have the Shema Yisrael, and, and if you look at some of that uh, in, in Deuteronomy, some of you will have it maybe underlined in your scripture. You will see exactly what that is. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And then it says, give that to your children. And then he describes, when you sit together to be mindful of what God did when he took us out of Egypt and carried us through the waters, through the desert, into the promised land. Why are we doing this? Let me tell you a story. And so a child is supposed to sit, stand up and say, why are we doing this, Daddy? And Daddy will tell the story. Because this is who we are. The child will sit down and have no doubt about who he is or who she is. Are we getting this? Remembrance about whose we are, but also who we are. This is our identity as we gather here. Don't ever miss that. 
becomes shallow and superficial when we just think, I need to remember a point in time. And so in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says it like this. I received from the Lord what I also passed unto you on the night when he was betrayed, that the Lord Jesus Christ took bread and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise also, he took the cup after the supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to ask you to go to the station that's closest to you to pick up a cup and a bread. And then go back to your seat or come here forward and just pray. And we'll pray together and partake at the same time. You're free to go and pick up your cup and your bread.